welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast, bringing together early career researchers and leaders within the field to discuss their research, hot topics, and to share career tips. I'm Dr. Gaia Brazzo, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh, and it's my pleasure to be the co-host of today's episode. My research aims to understand how and why stroke causes cognitive decline and dementia in some individuals with a specific focus on the role of the immune system and how we can manipulate this immune response to promote cognitive resilience. My co-host today is Mila, a PhD student that works with me. Mila, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Mila Rejic and I'm doing a PhD at the University of Edinburgh where I'm researching microglia, which are the main immune cells of the brain and how they respond to periods of hypoxia. So brain hypoxia or the lack of oxygen occurs during cerebrovascular disease such as stroke. And we also believe in some cases where the vascular dysfunction might be more subtle, but more prolonged, which could lead to dementia. And what we think is really important there is the immune response that's associated with this hypoxia. And we think that understanding it better might help us manipulate it to promote brain resilience. So today, we will be discussing the importance of lived experience in research and we will chat about the journey of recovery from a stroke and also the challenges of caring for someone who's had a stroke and importantly how we as researchers can interact with people with lived experience and vice versa to kind of bring our expertise together. So we're thrilled to be joined by two amazing guests. So we have Dennis who is a stroke survivor and his daughter Macy. So without further ado, let's meet our guest. Thank you very much, Gaia. Uh, I'm Dennis. I'm a, a stroke survivor. It is almost four years uh, to the day that I had my stroke. And if somebody had said to me uh, four years on when I was in intensive care that I would now be sitting, working and supporting uh, dementia researchers, and also I am providing a, a voice of lived experience with, along with others working with the, the Scottish government. Um, I would have thought they were not being telling the truth, but here I am, I'm a stroke survivor and carry some of the scars of that stroke. Um, and we will no doubt ca- carry these into to the discussion going forward. And this is Maisie. Hi. Um... I'm a nurse. Um, I graduated from Edinburgh University three years ago and now I work in the Department of Clinical Neuroscience in Edinburgh. So we see like stroke survivors and people who've just had strokes and you can see their progression as well, which is quite nice throughout our department. And she she also claims to be my daughter. And that too. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dennis and Macy. And just before we delve any deeper, I'm very conscious that this is the Dementia Researcher podcast, so maybe not all the listeners are aware of all the links between stroke and dementia. So Gaia, you're the resident expert. Could you tell us a little bit about what we know at the moment? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll try not to disappoint as I've been named a resident expert. I don't claim to be, but (laughs) I'll do my best. Um, So just to start us off, Uh, with a short introduction on what actually is stroke, in case some of our listeners are not as familiar with the topic. 
So the two main types of stroke, we have ischemic stroke, which is the most common. So actually 85% of all strokes in the UK are ischemic. And then there's hemorrhagic stroke. Ischemic stroke happens when blood supply to the brain is cut off uh, from a blood vessels, for example, from a clot, which might have dislodged from the heart, uh, which ends up killing the cells that are surrounding that vascular network due to hypoxia. Whereas hemorrhagic strokes, which make up about 15% of all strokes in the UK, are caused by a bleeding within or around the brain. And there are different causes that can lead to both ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes. For example, arteriosclerosis, which is the narrowing of blood vessels from plaques or atheromas or heart conditions like arterial fibrillation. Another cause that is very close to both mine and Mila's heart is small vessel disease. So this is the narrowing of the very, very tiny blood vessels within the brain. And small vessel disease has actually been linked directly with dementia and cognitive decline. And this narrowing of these tiny blood vessels can sometimes block them. So this could lead to strokes happening a lot more often or more likely to happen. In terms of what we know about cognitive impairment and stroke, we know that this occurs most commonly in the acute phase of stroke. And we see it in patients just after their stroke, once they've recovered from that acute phase. But over half of all stroke survivors actually do experience a long-term form of cognitive impairment or cognitive deficit. And this is really the aim of my research, to understand why some individuals go on to develop these long-term deficits that then progress into dementia. We know that the inflammatory response plays an active role in resolving the damage after stroke. But the immune system, if it stays active, it could actually lead to more damage um, so a prominent hypothesis in the field is that this unresolved inflammatory response from the cells of the brain that fight the stroke damage basically become activated and then create these maladaptive immune responses that compromise long-term recovery. So looking at functional recovery as well as integrity of brain structures that are left. And this could then lead to cognitive decline and dementia in about 30% of stroke survivors within a year of the stroke onset. But now let's actually hear more about uh, what stroke and stroke recovery, you know, directly from one of our guests. So Dennis, would you be happy to tell us about your stroke? Uh, for example, like when it's happened, some of the symptoms of onset uh, from yours and Maisie's perspective as well, that would be great. And also if you received any treatment when you got taken into hospital. Okay, thank you. Um... My stroke was, uh, as I say, uh, the 28th of March 2019, and uh, it was just after I had gone to bed in the evening. Um, my wife thought there was something wrong and she, she queried it, and within a minute I had become fast positive. Fast is what is used in the UK to describe the symptoms of stroke. It is facial weakness, arm or leg weakness, uh, the inability to, to hold both arms out if one falls. Uh, the S is for uh, speech, whether it be slurred or it is uh, dysphagic. And also the T is then time to get the emergency services. Uh, in the, the UK, this stands for dialing 999, but it is to get ambulance or or medical help. Um, so I was I was fast positive, and uh, the family immediately called uh, the ambulance, 
I was taken in under blue light to the hospital where I was given CT scans and uh, tested for swallowing. Uh, all the symptoms of stroke um, were there. So uh, as it turned out, I was within the right time scale for thrombolysis. I, by the time of my stroke to the, the admission of the, the drugs, it was within the, the four and a half hour window. So I, I had thrombolysis and even within 10 minutes of the, the hour of getting that uh, pumped into my veins, I'd very much got better physically. The, the arm and leg weakness had disappeared, as had the, the facial droop, and the speech was, was on its way back. Um, from that, I was then taken up to intensive care for overnight and into the stroke unit. But I was actually released from hospital within 40 hours and sent home. Um, subsequently, there has been some work. They, they, they discovered I had uh, asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. So I've had ablation to, to correct the, the AF within my heart. But actually, I've... I, my doctor was kind of offhand and said, oh, if I had a list of patients who I thought would have a stroke, you weren't very high on that list, Dennis. And, uh, you know, it was things like that. And I have actually never seen a stroke nurse. There are a lot of things now that I've learned that I should have been speaking to the stroke nurse about. Um, but I'm sure that Maisie will tell, the, tell you about the the aspects of home care that weren't about the physical side of stroke, but were about the emotional and the, the, the other effects that can happen through stroke. So, so um, Maisie, yeah. you, you can be as honest as you like. Yeah. Well, but I, I would say definitely very tired, more grumpy, as the day goes on. Um, we're a very sarcastic family. Me and my brother and sister, we always wind each other up, very sarcastic. My dad doesn't understand that sarcasm anymore. Um, he goes from zero to 10, but like shouting at us to stop, where we're just like having fun. Um, like it's, when you're talking to him, he can sometimes sound very blunt and not very not responding to your tone is completely different in his tone um but it's kind of like you don't you know he doesn't mean it in that way that he's saying it but it comes across quite quite brutal and um what else um How, how's my practice of door slammings improved oh um coordination is not very good we were walking down to the the rugby last week and walked into a few a few doors, fell off a few curbs. Especially when you get tired, your coordination and balance goes out the window. Um, you can definitely tell when dad is tired because his speech goes, he gets quite slurred speech and he, just walking becomes quite a chore for him. Um, and even just postural, you kind of lean forward 
trying to keep yourself upright. Um, but other than that, you seem to have covered. It's, it's always just these things that when you get tired, these are the things that just create, uh, creep up. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you both so much for sharing that experience. It obviously goes without saying it sounds completely life-changing. And uh, so, yeah, we really appreciate you sharing that with us. And just to kind of follow on from that, both Dennis and Maisie. So, you know, a lot of people that research stroke or even the public would think that you would be left with some sort of physical disability. I know, Maisie, you touched on coordination, which obviously goes into kind of a motor realm uh, but you know a lot of people might still be left with an arm or a leg weakness or a facial weakness and we could probably say that that hasn't been your case Dennis if I'm correct in saying that. Sorry just absolutely I'm I, I'm very blessed that I was the right time to to get thrombolysis um, the the figures are there are around 9 million people in Europe living with physical disabilities from stroke. And, uh, you know, I, I am very blessed that it, I am not one of them, but I still know that I've had a stroke. There are, there are times I'll walk, meet people for the first time and they go, and I mention about being a stroke survivor, and they go, oh, you don't look like it. No, but I know I am. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a definite. And I probably should have maybe mentioned for people who are not familiar. So the treatment that Dennis received is basically something that dissolves the clot, that it's in, um, you know, been embedded into his blood vessels. Obviously, this would then restore blood flow and allow that brain area to be reflooded with new oxygen and nutrients that have been carried into the blood. And as Dennis uh, mentioned already, there's a very short window for people to receive this treatment. So there's not a lot of people, unfortunately, that can benefit from this. I've, I've had a stroke and just emphasize that we definitely need more treatments uh, for this because they're few and they have very specific windows which can be acted on. And this is a big area of research that um, is going on to try and find therapies that can definitely have a broader spectrum of when it can be acted yeah. on. One of the things that the stroke charities in the UK, as well as the government, are are trying to promote is this the fast, the facial droop, the arm and leg weakness, the speech. And if you see any of these symptoms, then it is time to, to get somebody to emergency service. I, I'm very fortunate that although I was in bed, I was still awake at the time. If If I had gone to sleep and woken up four hours later with a stroke, then I wouldn't have been a candidate for thrombolysis because they, they wouldn't have known whereabouts in that timescale they were. And that four and a half hours is really important for making trying to make the best outcomes for, for stroke survivors where that it reduces the, the physical disabilities that can be affected. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and as Gaia mentioned, the you know motor component of it and physical disabilities in research as well, we often use it, I guess, as a readout of mm -hmm. if something's worked or not. And that's where we focus when we speak about stroke recovery. But I know based on what you just told us and from our previous interactions that you didn't 
perhaps have as much of the motor impairment, but that you had some other areas where you struggled a bit more with. So I was just wondering if you could maybe share a bit of that with us and kind of comment on how you feel when, you know, things like that happen when people are like, oh yeah, you don't look like you've had a stroke. And is there some other area you'd like us to focus more on? I think for me, it's um, as, as as somebody who's uh, heading towards their mid-60s, uh, I've had to learn new emotions uh, for the first time in 50 years. Uh, you know, we always think that teenagers are the, the point where you learn new emotions. Well, I've, I've had to learn with anxiety. I've had to learn how how to how to try and cope with anxiety um i i still don't have that one quite right yet and uh, that puts strains on your family the the emotional side of of stroke i can sit and be watching the news with tears running down my eyes because of what's on the news newscast and it's you know that's something new for me the the physical showing of emotion um the the fact that when you're doing things like this and I, you know I've I, I I'm speaking now with uh, government employees with uh, government um, parliamentarians and at some points and you know that puts a stress on it and and you're 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 thinking of I know that word what what word am I looking for and you're having to think how to rephrase the conversation because you cannot think of a simple word. Like I could be looking at, at, at the laptop where you're, you're using for t- today's recording and think, I, I, know, I know I should know what it's called, but because of the pressure of, of all the other things in the environment, I cannot think of the, the word laptop and, you know, uh, or, or I choose the wrong word, um, you know, that there are so it's learning all these things but and as Maisie has already alluded to i i my reactions emotions to the family have changed i have slammed more doors in the four years after my stroke than i've slammed in the the 50 odd years uh before the stroke and that was just you have to learn to um accept that the the person you are post-stroke is not the person you were five seconds before the stroke. You have changed completely. There is a grieving process that strokes are, some stroke survivors will talk about it. You have to grieve for the person you were before you can accept the person you have become. And that's an emotional challenge to people as well. Um, so it's... It, it's all this bit of uh, other things that, you know, my motor skills, if I'm tired, I become clumsy. I will drop things and, uh, you know, or, and things like that. So, yeah, there's a, there is a whole new person that you have to learn to be after your stroke. Now, I'm fortunate I can go out and have a walk. I can, I can talk. There are stroke survivors that are, are are learning how to live life without the basic functions that they had five seconds before their stroke. Uh, so you know that is where when we're talking about research, 
now is the physical side, everybody understands you need rehabilitation, you need, uh, oh, can you write, can you, can you sign your name, can you do all these things? That is important, but also the important bit is learning actually what is happening in the brain after a stroke. Because stroke fatigue, we have changed, uh, we've been involved in giving advice to the, the, the Scottish government work employees and also uh, Scottish government itself saying, you know, it used to say Scottish government in their pathway for stroke, it was a case of that stroke fatigue could happen. It is now says stroke fatigue is commonplace. It's not a big change in words, but it's a ch big change in the emphasis. And that bit of looking, nobody understands what causes stroke fatigue. Why do I still, four years after my sto stroke, still suffer from stroke fatigue? The brain hasn't got any better on that one. So when you both, Milan, Gaia are talking about what, where are the symptom or, or similarities between stroke and dementia? It is that bit of what is actually happening in the brain because, yes, physically we're fine, but it's that whole change in, in what your brain function has been post stroke. Yeah, absolutely. So my work has actually come about from a consultation from actual carers and stroke survivors to say, you know, what are your top priorities? Because I think it's recognizing in stroke research that something physical like a, a motor impairment is really easy to see. So that's kind of easy to target in a way because you have an outcome of, you know, what's your baseline at this minute in terms of function and then how can we improve that and we can measure that again. Something that's cognitive or emotional is a lot harder to try and quantify in a way. And it's also less overt than something that's a motor disability in a way. So it's about shaping how people think about recovery in stroke beyond physical. Uh, and it's also recognizably a lot harder to try and study because, as I said, they're more subtle than, you know, a motor deficit, which is quite easy to see if you meet someone that's had a stroke. It just sounds everything that you told us, Dennis, thank you so much. Like uh, very, as Gaia said before, a life-changing experience and also like a very long, long recovery journey that is full of, you know, ups and downs and everything. But I would just like to bring back to the point that you mentioned before that you your life changed overnight and that after the stroke, you were not the same person you were five seconds before the stroke. And this concept of, as you said, the self-grievance process learning to live with your new self. So I was just curious, Macy, in terms of your impressions on that, because, you know, it, I'm guessing it must have left a huge impact on yourself and the rest of your family. Could you maybe share with us a little bit on how it's affected you? Yeah, so obviously we've had to learn how to kind of adapt to dad's maybe new emotions and new anxieties. Definitely took us a good few months to find a way that works best for all of us and especially dad um 
especially like him when he's anxious he'll just can change completely um it'll be up to 99s it'll start like pacing you, you try your best to find the words to try and chill him out but you just kind of have to find your own solution um because dad's trying to find a solution but obviously he's not able to find one because he's so anxious so you just kind of have to try and guide him in the right way um there was a time we were in Switzerland. It was a couple months after your stroke. We were trying to find out how to go into the city and the best way to get into the city. And Dad was like, oh, just go on this bus. It was going to cost us like 100 euros each. My brother was Googling and Dad was up to 99s. He had to walk away. So usually it's like Dad that works out how to get places on holiday. So obviously we've had to adapt and change. Like Dad probably gets too stressed about it now, so we've kind of taken the role. Um, and when he gets tired, you just kind of just maybe hint at going to bed. You're quite good at. No, I've learned that one. Yeah, there's when he gets tired, you'll get grumpier and grumpier. You'll get that frown. It's a, a very characteristic lots of lines um so when he when he gets that frown you just kind of kind of push him to go to bed um but one of like the main things that we've tried not to do is put words in his mouth so when he's struggling to find the words we used to at the start try and help him and find the words but he would get more and more frustrated with that so we've just kind of let him do it himself like it might take a while we might we know what he's trying to say anyway but we don't want to make him feel like he's like struggling so we just let him let him be and eventually well it may feel like minutes from trying to find words but it's not so we just need to always sit back just be patient and wait for him to say the, the words that he's looking for but yeah, it's a lot of a lot of patience that we've had to <laughs> work on. But um, in the end, I think we've we found a way. So yeah. that we've all tr- like cope to try and cope with it. Yeah. No, thanks so much again for sharing. You know, from listening from what you were saying, Macy, it sounds like you almost have to learn to communicate again. Like in terms of you know some things that Dennis might express differently, or if you know, recognizing maybe when he is anxious or when he do wants to go to bed and he might not express that, but there's sort of like small triggers that you might pick up that obviously are new to before, Dennis, you had your stroke, which, yeah, is a lot to try and, you know, refocus and have everyone kind of on board. So that sounds like quite a big challenge in terms of, you know, emotional for all the family, really. Especially... With me, like I live at home, the only one that lives at home now with mum and dad. And I usually like lying on the couch on my phone and I don't really pay attention to it. But um, obviously when like dad's trying to talk to me or something, kind of just keep my head down and still on my phone. And he's just, just like staring at me and being like, Maisie. And I'm like, well, I've answered you, I've answered you. But obviously... I'm 
not communicating to him like how he wants like he wants me to like look at him and um just say like good night to <laughs> to his face <laughs> rather than saying good night to my phone um yes yeah, we're definitely as a family had to work on our like communication after after the stroke because it's completely changed yeah it sounds like you're almost processing two things the stroke but then also this change in the family dynamics and the, mm-hmm. the relationships yeah and i i i think from a stroke survivor point of view you think you're doing everything correctly because that's what your brain tells you you're doing is correct and in actual fact it is probably that bit of it is not correct and it's the people that love and care for you that are telling you it's not correct so it it it, to an extent it can be a a a a constant spiral of you know am I right am I wrong you know and and why am I wrong and whatever and that's all part of what we were talking about the 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 brain understanding you know trying to learn you know that this is this is a new norm and it the old norm doesn't isn't going to happen again and uh, you know so there you know, and it, and it is things like you know after this podcast you know everybody else will go away and do things I'll probably go for an hour's sleep because of stroke fatigue um you know and it's it and I now know these things are are what's needed and we'll do it um whereas right for, at the start it was no no let let's do this let's do that and you know, whereas now it's uh, no, I've been on for an hour getting the podcast all organised. Um, I'll just go for an hour sleep. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's adapting to like your new limits and yeah. kind of pushing the boundaries almost at the start to see how far you can push yourself without obviously penalising yourself in a way and just getting to know. I guess what you said before, a new a new self because you are different compared to before. Yeah, and- and it's how your how your brain copes with different stress levels. I mean, I, I'm a retired accountant. I, 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 I knew stress at work and had my coping mechanisms. It's different now. Things that stress you are 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 less less of a magnitude, but they cause you the same amount of stress. And it is just coping with that side of it as well. Go for a meal. No, I was just going to say that uh, obviously you can never be prepared for something like this. Mm-hmm. But these new limits and these things that you experienced, did you ever hear about them from someone? You know, either going to your doctors in the hospital or the family practitioner or maybe you, I don't know if you managed to find maybe some support groups online or in person. Was it? Was there anyone to kind of guide you a little bit through the process or was it for every single thing you had to reach a boundary and then say, all right, I need to stop here, can't do this or I need to do that? I, I, I think where I am now with uh, being involved with as part of the voice of lived experience, um, yes, I understand where I am now. Um, my first real 
aspect of getting to understand me was actually taking part in a, a for and this is a big misnomer, the mild stroke research at the University of Edinburgh. I understand that it's called mild stroke because there is very there is no motor uh, deficiencies, but it is still a, a misnomer calling it a mild stroke. Every stroke is unique; it is not it is not mild. But you know, that's how that that's how the whole stroke side of aspects are are, are categorised. And it was actually just working with the. The, some of the, the stroke research staff at the, the University of Edinburgh that I came in across a lot of the things that I thought was just me. And uh, I, you know, I, I think it's from that point that I've developed into here we are four, four years later, um, now working uh, with both yourself and Gaia, Gaia and others and, uh, you know, Certainly been an interesting journey, um, not always smooth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's about recognizing that, you know, again, going back to like something that's very overt, like a physical disability, an emotional or a cognitive disability is just as important as a physical one. And there's definitely needs to be more support, more recognition about these other aspects of recovery that go with stroke than just the physical. Um, and I think, yeah, hopefully that will come in time. There's already a shift in the research of how the funders are thinking about these things, obviously involving people like yourselves, Dennis and Maisie, you know, carers and family of stroke survivors to tease out basically how can we actually help you as opposed to we'll follow on from decades of research that we've already done. And that kind of leads very nicely into our next question. <laughs> So thinking a wee bit more broadly, so one of the topics we wanted to talk to you both about today is this interaction or this need for more interaction between people like yourselves, so with lived experience and researchers like myself and Mila, or even other stakeholders, and the idea that how this partnership can be invaluable in terms of exchanging knowledge and helping us researchers form new ideas, obviously make more science happen, which would hopefully impact you guys, because ultimately that's what we want to do. Um, and I know, Dennis, you mentioned already, you have experience of working with government, uh, policymakers and health policies and researchers, of course. Uh, do you want to maybe share with us one or two examples, maybe one or two experiences that you found most valuable or most rewarding uh, that you've interacted with stakeholders or researchers? I, I think there are... Uh... A number of highlights. One was um, listening to one of the the cl psychological clinicians talking about uh, the work that they are doing with uh, stroke patients, and um, what one of the highlights has been working with uh, one of the psychological clinicians, and uh, they're view was that while there are uh, a number of clinicians in Scotland working, the actual uh, going by the, the ratios, it should be quadruple that number of uh, psychological clinicians in Scotland than there currently is. 
But that then brought us around to actually, uh, as a lived experience group, talking about it. And uh, we actually felt that the research uh, and the level of psychological care should be brought down to uh, the nursing staff as well, is that they should be asking about your your mental health well-being as well as saying, oh, can you walk three paces? Can you can you move your fingers? And it's and it's all that bit of bringing uh, the the actual care, both of physical and mental well well-being, down to really the tier one, tier two level, rather than referring it up the way. So that was that was part of the um, one of the highlights of actually starting to look at where mental well-being comes into to care within certainly within Scotland. Now that is now to be uh, spread. You know, at the moment it it is probably a postcode lottery um, now across Scotland that we hope to to move away from that aspect of it just depends where you live what your what your um mental well well-being services to actually we we have a standard across the country um for me as well other things have been actually having very open and honest con- conversations with with carers, with clinicians, and other stroke survivors, about just what all we are, are are going through, and all of us know that each stroke is unique. No one stroke survivor has an identical journey to the next person, so it is not a, a you know a one answer fits all questions type of condition. And it's making sure that each of us gets the support that we need, whether that be through rehab, through uh, non-cognitive skills, through uh, even as we've talked about and is uh, on sexual well-being as well. Because all of these, you know, the, the motor skills, the emotional skills, the, the, the sexual well-being as well are all things that, can affect a, a stroke survivor and also their carer. But the other side is the, the things that we've talked about from a carer's point of view is, you know, a lot of the carers are the wife, husband or partner of the stroke survivor. And at what point do you split, how do you split between primary carer and being partner? And, you know, that that's also one, you know, so there, there's a lot of highlights. I'm not quite sure of, you know, um, yeah, walking 10 miles what is a great highlight for me. But for some people, walking 10, 10 meters is a great highlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's that bit of what actually is a highlight. It's, you know, it's. It depends on each person, and it depends, you know, on their stroke, what is what they set for goals. So, you know, um, highlights for me. There are a few. Uh, 
um, but they are a lot of it is now ensuring that if somebody in the future has a stroke that they actually get a better outcome than I do and if one person gets a better outcome from me then all of what I've done in the last three years has been great the, the first year will write off because you're just first year after a stroke if you excuse the terminology you just wonder what the hell's happened to you it's incredible everything that you do Dennis and you just keep going and going and getting involved in more and more things so can I ask you what is your secret how how do you stay motivated to do all these things part of it is I can't say no which the family shouts at me quite a lot um but no I I, I look at things that I used to do and they are no interest to me I I used to spend many hours a week with a with a youth organization and I'm looking to to really finish that now I'm not I'm spending about two hours a month doing it and it's and it's it's not a motivation to me now my my brain has changed as to to what motivates me and it's now yeah stroke um working with a, a, a local charity trying to relieve food poverty and my own church are the three things that actually make make me motivated now and all the rest is just noise and I don't control the noise so I, I actually don't want to be part of it now. No it's amazing because from what you were saying you know it sounds you've managed to turn something that's obviously quite a negative experience to do something really positive, not just for yourself, but for other people, obviously, as you said, thinking about the future, which I think anyone would say that's a very admirable goal. Um, you know, so thank you so much uh, for, you know, some people might have a very different outlook. They're so like, I'm just going to carry on and focus on my recovery. And that's, you know, their personal yeah. choice. But the fact that you're motivated to help people and get involved is really really yeah. inspiring and admirable especially despite the stroke fatigue because you mm -hmm. were saying how you yeah struggle with stroke fatigue and then to then go on and do all these things is just incredible yeah. absolutely do you think Dennis that this has helped your recovery in a way obviously being involved and you know utilizing you know cognitive skills mm -hmm. or even emotional skills to you know interact with people or solve different problems do you think that's helped you in a way recover more fully than if you you know just said I'm just going to stay at home and focus on me uh, absolutely if I, if I had stayed at home um one I would have driven myself mad and two I would have driven the family mad and uh, you know it it is a release for me and it's also just who I am I've I've always wanted to to be involved in helping other people, um, and it is great now being involved with people who who sh who fully understand what it is to be a stroke survivor. So I can I I can talk to them, and we we meet at least once a month, and you know it is full and frank discussions and I realize for a lot of things I am blessed and you know 
the the things I've got actually on other people's scale, I'm about five or six, not ten, um, and they're still doing it. So yeah, it's great. Um, you know, so it's it's it, with the with the researchers. Um, I, I my view is just. Uh, for both you, Gaia, Mila, and others that I'm going to to be involved with, is uh, that bit of I hope that I bring across why it is so important to understand what is happening in the brain. Because you both have met me, and at the start of the meeting. Physically, you wouldn't have known it after four hours of being shown your your research around the research lab and chatting for for hours. You saw the tired me, and uh, you know that that is how what is effect a half day's work has has on people. And uh, you know if if that was a highlight, albeit you know. Maybe not one, a half day's work is not a highlight to a lot of people, but to a half day's work of of showing you what I can look like at two o'clock when I arrived to when I left it just before six o'clock in the evening, and the, you know I even know there was a significant change in that. So you know it's it it it's these kind of things. Yes, they've helped me understand me, but they've also given me a purpose of why. I I want to get involved in, in in what I'm doing, and I'm thoroughly enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. And I just need the family occasionally to keep going to me. So, no, Dad, you're not doing this. No, Dad, you've got too much. <laughs> they keep you on the right track. That sounds that sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> and speaking of research, Dennis, since you have mentioned it, obviously I know you you know mentioned you came to the lab to see Mila and I and we kind of went through what we do here and obviously you shared your perspective on you know like this is how it's affected me so it'd be great to see hopefully I'm not paraphrasing so please do correct me if I'm wrong that you'd want to see more you know research into fatigue the emotional changes within stroke and actually understanding you know what bits of the brain could be targeted to resolve that um so I'm going to turn to you now Macy um on a similar note do you think there's more research or what would you like to see researched on a more family carer side of things if you think it does need more support what would you like to see done yeah so um there's definitely more of a focus on when the stroke survivors got like a physical weakness so I did my dissertation in uni on the impact on the family when a stroke survivor doesn't have any weakness so they're basically not back to baseline but pretty much they're normal um and that was the first time that I kind of found found things that related to like me and my family um and I had to like go through academic journals just to find like people that have gone through the same um experiences as us um, so it was quite good, obviously, doing my dissertation on that um, t- topic. Um, but yeah, so it'd be good for more research and more support for families of stroke survivors that don't have any um, physical weaknesses or any like impairments at all. Because um, 
don't think there's many out there. I've not come across any. The, just on that, the, the, the two charities in, in Scotland do provide peer support groups and carer support groups, but actually it's the when the stroke survivor leaves hospital, you get a lot of information about things that aren't relevant or it is given to the stroke survivor and they are in such a state of confusion at that point that you need to tell them about four or five times what is actually being offered and not just the the clinician is saying, oh, you can go home now and here's, this is some information for you. All you hear is you're going home and you forget the rest. And it's that bit of how do we make sure that the the, the resources are out there, um, but it is how, how do people not spend hours trolling the internet to to look for what care or support is local and whatever. But it's it's also the the aspect of everything that is said to the general public, certainly in the UK, is about the physical aspect of stroke. Fast that we mentioned at the start is about face. It is about arm and legs. It's about speech. It's what people can see within the first 10 seconds of them meeting you. What is not known to the public in general is that the, the effect of new emotions, of you know, anxiety, of um, you know, just all the the non-motor side, the cognitive side is is uh, that that is a, a deficiency in the public knowledge of stroke across the UK. It and it's also where we need to to bolster the the rehabilitation side of stroke, and uh, you know the physical side is you will get a. A, an occupational therapist to come in and show you how to to do all the skills that you need to do to get home, and that's climbing the stairs, being able to put the kettle on, and you know I I say this on the basis that um, Maisie's sister is an occupational therapist uh, working with uh, mental elderly mental health, so that's uh, dementia sufferers in the northern part of Scotland. And it's and it's all the physical skills, and it is not about for stroke survivors. There is a, a depletion in service on what is the other side of it. The things that you don't need to be able to do to leave hospital, like climb stairs so you can get to a toilet, like make a cup of tea, like being able to put the microwave on. Um, we. Some of us can manage that, but we can't manage other things. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to, I guess, the common theme of today that it's about, you know, a shift in the perception yeah. of what is stroke. That's more of a complete picture. It has other elements yeah. apart from motor and obviously the effect on the individual, but as well as the family that has to be recognized and, you know, things to be implemented yeah. to support that. 
even I guess thinking of how some of these symptoms might overlap across different diseases because at the moment I think we tend to box things Mm -hmm. motor deficit stroke memory problems dementia and so on but I guess a lot of these resources and groups could then be shared if we Mm -hmm. just viewed it a bit more well-rounded yeah absolutely yeah oh oh yes I, I my memory is not as good as it was and uh I I've probably done it in this podcast but chosen the wrong word from the library of uh to when I've meant to say something and I've used a word that sounds or similar but you know um no doubt um I, I I'll be excused that <laughs> Yeah, no, no doubt with these kinds of interactions, the future of stroke research is looking bright. So I think just as a final point, uh, going to the topic of future, what's next for both of you? Just in terms of, you know, things that you plan to achieve, maybe some of your involvement with these lived experience groups or another, any other kind of level. I, I think for me, it's uh, carry on where we are, that there is part of me and, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to, at the end of the year, take uh, a bit of a step back from the lived experience group because my stroke was four years ago. Things move on and, you know, there, there, there has to be new space for, for new stroke survivors to come in and, give their experience and you know with with a changing environment in stroke care um you know so th- th- there's part of me that that thinks um i i've said enough and i've i've passed on information but i've also been involved in a group that has had a a significant input into to, to government uh thinking um, you know, so will I carry on supporting uh, research work and stuff? Yes, I will do because I'm a stroke survivor, and you know, I I I want to be involved in that. Um, and there will be other opportunities that will come up for for working with people like yourselves, uh, Gaia and Mela. Um, so so I look forward to that. Um, but you know, I I don't expect to be uh, the the voice of lived experience working uh, and 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 doing as many hours for for all of the rest of my 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 life. So um, I'm not quite sure what the next uh, the 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 next challenges will be. We'll we'll wait and see what comes along. For sure. And how about you, Macy? What do you think the future holds for you? And, you know, what are your hopes in terms of the future of stroke research and rehabilitation? Well, to keep carry on supporting my dad um, and everything that he does. And obviously, obviously telling him to go to bed when he needs to. <laughs> um, and just keep, um, we've got good um, links to the Scottish Charities for Stroke. We keep fundraising for them and just hope that research keeps moving along and like for especially for the mental health side of stroke um so we just see what the future holds basically 
Yeah, thank you. Well, it was a real pleasure hearing from you both, um, but I'm afraid this is all we have time for today. So if you just can't get enough of this topic, please visit the Dementia Researcher website where you will find the full transcript of today's podcast, also our biographies, blogs, and much more on this topic and also on the topic of dementia research. Um, I would like to thank our incredible guests, Dennis and Macy. Uh, I think we touched on so much today. We spoke about so many topics. And as we said, importantly, even though, you know, we centered it around stroke, these are really things and conversations that are important ones to be had in any research setting, we think. And yeah, we are Mila and Gaia, and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support.